Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week on The Exchange, we're talking to two of the minds behind Insomniac, the company throwing America's largest electronic music festivals. They run giant events like Electric Daisy Carnival and Nocturnal Wonderland. But underneath the excess, CEO and founder Pasquale Rotella and his head talent buyer Carlos Coriol are down-to-earth people. Where businesses jumped on the American EDM boom to make a quick buck, Rotella and Coriol have strategically charted a slow and steady rise over the course of 20-plus years. And in light of Insomniac's Factory 93 concept, they also seem intent on going back to their warehouse party roots. Speaking with RA's Matt McDermott in Los Angeles, Rotella and Coriol gave us an insight into how the 90s rave scene shaped the events they throw in the present day. It's very clear that neither of you guys are running out of steam uh, at all. And I wanted to discuss the uh, Factory 93 concept because, you know, you guys are looking after a festival that draws millions worldwide. And it seems like the Factory 93 concept is like a sort of back to your roots kind of warehouse type of feel. Like, can you describe how that came about and why it's important to you? For so many years, we were in warehouses. And we couldn't afford to do all the things we're doing now at the big festivals. The first time being in a warehouse and turning on a laser because we could afford a laser was like a huge moment. I used to do the lighting at our own warehouse parties. I went to, you know, I, I would truck the lights and put them in my trunk, set them up, strobe lights, um, fog machines, whatever. And, um, you know, we worked really hard to be able to take things to another level. We've been doing that for a while now, these big festivals, and it's a lot of work. And the, I, f- I feel like there's still wow moments, and we're still, we love what we do, and we, we but it's not limited to those big, uh, massive, huge production experiences. To go back to our roots, where things are a little bit more simple, was exciting to us. You know, we, we for years, actually, this wouldn't be the first time, actually, that we've gone back to doing warehouse parties after doing make big, massive festivals. One of our events, um, it's called Bass Rush. I think it was in, I want to say, it was, it was in 2002, actually. It started off as an old school, right now it's known as a, it's a bass brand, bass music brand. And it, start, you know, it started as an old school warehouse, techno, rave, acid house party. And I, we did it in downtown. We did, the first one was on the ninth floor of like an abandoned building in downtown LA before downtown has been so developed. The love for those early years has always been there. It's just about us making the time to make, make those events happen. We've been pushing forward for so long Although there's no way we could ever shake the, those early years from our memory. It's why we do everything that we do today. Those were some of the most, um, you know, there was no big productions. It was all about the energy. The warehouse was really cool, you know, finding the party, you know, the going down the alley with graffiti, the whole, everything about it, the music rattling, you know, the warehouse that wasn't, you know, soundproofed, knowing if it was going to go to the morning or not. Those experiences helped most of us at the company find our love and passion in life, and that is doing these events. So it felt it felt very natural to to go back to that place every so often. 
we've never done it on the level that we've been doing it recently. There's been more support from music fans than there was other times that we've tried it. Other times that we tried it, we were kind of doing it for, we were doing it for ourselves to have a good time and let loose and put our old uh, rave gear on and, and listen to some, we, we, even the sets were a little bit th throwback. Today we're doing these for not only ourselves, but there's, there's an audience that's interested where that didn't exist so much last time we tried doing warehouse parties. It comes from our roots. It comes from a place of passion. We work really hard at the office, and if we're bored with what we're doing, we don't feel like we're moving forward, we're not as happy in life, and doing these events makes us happy. So, and, we, and of course, the energy from the people that are coming to them we, is gratifying as well. So all those things combined really make it worth it and exciting for us. There's a lot of fans uh, at the office that that search out not only our, you know other people warehouse parties too. It's been it's been going on for for a minute. So we're just uh, we're really into it and it's an exciting time for and the music that's coming out right now is so good and for me some of that music is warehouse music. It's made it's made to be I, you I rather I don't want to hear that in a nightclub um, as much as I do a warehouse. The, the samples right now there's so many techno and house artists that are sampling music from the era that I love the early 90s from 1989 um, 89 to 93 um, it's I get so excited about it and there's no better place than a warehouse setting to to hear the, that, those beats it's interesting insomniac the website has now sort of become like a portal with a lot of editorial information on all the festivals, information on sort of insomniac regulars, like what they're up to. Uh, but there's also some editorial on classic tracks, like uh, anything from Donna Summer to Rome Anthony to Jamie Principal. You have a lot of great journalists sort of writing descriptions, and those pieces will be alongside like how to talk to your parents about camping at EDC or how, how to talk to your parents about pasties or something like that. And it's, it's, it's an interesting mix and it seems like you guys understand your audience. And is there years in, at this point, you know, the kid who saved up to go to EDC at 18 is now, you know, a college graduate or working. And is there an idea that you guys are educating your fans and growing along with them as well? Absolutely. It's our responsibility to, to look out for young people. I feel like it is. You know, that's the way the scene was. Even when I was just a raver, just going to underground parties, you know, they call them newbies these days. You would look out for one another. And if someone came out to a moon tribe party in the desert and it was their first time and they, got, they were driving too fast or they got stuck, you pull over, you help them out or you give them some advice. And we're doing the same thing, you know, everything that we've learned, we've learned from this movement, from this culture. And you look out for one another, you want people to have a good time, you want to preserve the greatness that is this culture. That comes with mentoring and, and, and talking to the younger people that, that are coming into the scene. I love talking to people even, you know, when I'm out in person, meeting new people and you know, me learning from them, learning from me, and that was part of the part of the culture. So we're just doing it in a different way. Now there's the internet where the, that didn't exist back in the day, and we just share, you know, share music, share stories, whatever we feel like might be important to the people that are interested in coming to our events and that are part of this community. We we try to touch on. Are, are you comfortable sort of being the face of Insomniac? Because it's interesting, like on the site, you know, there are various links and it'll be like, okay, Nocturnal Wonderland, uh, EDC, and then Pasquale, you know, and a lot of fans, you know, if you drive around the grounds of the Speedway, people are going to try to get a photo with you and, um, you know, they follow your feed for information on what's going on for industry intrigue everything like that i mean like what uh are you are you cool with being out front you know, to an extent i i was behind the scenes and never up front in the early days 
I used to pass out flyers outside the parties. There were some hardcore scenesters that would know who I was and talk to me about what they liked or didn't like. And most things uh, I learn about our own events are from the from the fans. And I've actually was super shy until I had a problem in downtown LA. You know, it wasn't till pretty late, I think it was 2010, that I, I actually was affiliated, like Face was affiliated with Insomniac. And the reason why that happened was all the political drama with the LA Coliseum and EDC. I was getting attacked by the media, I was getting attacked by just everybody. And the scene was also getting attacked. And I had um, hired some consultants to help me because it was, it was just, it was brutal. And I was a behind the scenes guy and I wanted to fight back. I wanted to do something about these false accusations, these misunderstandings. And I, I got this uh, firm that when they met me, they were surprised. They're like, You're, you seem like a nice guy and that you love what you do. And they are painting your, the picture as you being this really greedy, dark, evil person that's in an alley counting his money. We feel like you're a loving person and a caring person and you're not anything that you know, we feel like is being put out there about you and the, the, the culture. Their advice was to actually come out and they, they also said that it seemed like everyone in this industry at the time was hiding. And there were no faces behind the parties. There weren't even really faces behind the music because the DJs weren't featured really all that much. It was about the music. It wasn't about the character. And it was about the party. It wasn't about the promoter or the producer. So they ad advised that, you know, come out and talk about the culture and, you know, put myself out there. And I was definitely uncomfortable with that at first because I didn't know, it was pretty rough out there. Like they weren't, it, it, they weren't being too nice. Um, and the, the, again, the picture they were painting was pretty, pretty dark and negative. And there was a lot of liabilities. There's also legal, you know, there's a lot of threats. So because of loving this so much, and also I was also angry, angry a little bit on the, misconception of what, what this was about. I mean, these events, so beautiful, done so much for my life. So coming, you know, coming and speaking about what went on at the Coliseum and speaking about the culture and my, my organization, it was amazing the reaction I got. And I didn't even have a Twitter. I was probably the last person to have Twitter. <laughs> and uh, I got a lot of support from Messine. You know, at, at the Coliseum, people showed up with, picket signs and it was a little rev revolution it felt like that was happening and people were as upset as I was and wanted to defend the culture and because I had spoken out about it and came out behind you know out of this dark alley they this picture they painted there was a lot of support and love from people within the culture of course the media and the politicians had a different view and that's where it really all started. I really started enjoying it because as time went on, I was able to have those one-on-one -on -one interactions with fans of the events and people that loved the culture that I wasn't able to have from the early days when the scene was smaller and I was passing out flyers. I used to hear from people direct and I was being able to do that on over online. So I was, People were telling me what they didn't like, what they did like, and I was able to respond to them, and I was able to learn from them so I can make things better. So it, it just turned in, and, and it turned into this really productive, positive experience. As it, it seems like it's pretty simple now, or pretty obvious, obvious, but it was actually something that was very unique, and I didn't know how it was going to go. Uh, briefly to run over the controversy that EDC was embroiled in back in 2010. Um, a young woman, 15 years of age, attended EDC in LA, uh, in downtown, and uh, 
she snuck in. The age curfew was six, 16, and she died of MDMA-related causes. Um, after that insomniac, Pasquale was uh, accused of giving kickbacks to Todd DiStefano, a uh, employee of the city who looked after the LA Sports Arena as well as the LA Coliseum. Since then, Pasquale has been exonerated of all charges related to that, and there was a settlement related. But as a result of that, EDC is now in Las Vegas. And this story has been sort of done to death. Uh, not to, and, and, but one of the things I wanted to speak about here was ground control. The measures that you guys take on site, you know, to have people walking throughout the grounds and being like, hey, how you doing? Like, you know, you're, the employees that you guys hire, uh, you know, to sort of roam the grounds and make sure that everything is cool. And I also wanted to speak about in Europe, in some places, they're taking like a harm reduction approach to, you know, the fact that some people are going to imbibe at these things. It's like, it's a fact of life. And here in the U.S., it seems like a lot of times the wrong attitude is taken. It's just like, keep it away from us completely. And as a result of that, people are sneakier about it. Whereas in some places in Europe, like they have this harm reduction style thing. They're like, if you're going to take it, make sure that you're doing it the right way. Um, from a political standpoint, you know, you're obviously the biggest force in electronic music in the U.S. Like, is is there now having stepped out into the open and proven to everybody that, hey, I'm a businessman, I'm a nice guy, I'm in this for the love, I'm taking care of the people who attend the festival. Are there changes that you're lobbying for from moving the alcohol curfew to 4 a.m. in L.A. to, you know, having a realistic drug policy in the U.S.? Like, is, is this something that's important to you on a, on a larger scale? Absolutely. Actually, we just started something called Open Talk, where at the festivals you can go and ask anything and we'll answer it for you and it has you know it's it's focused on health and safety we have the best medical team on the planet you know we've recently just announced a new way to help people that might have uh, made a made a bad decision you know um, the amount of money invested in making sure that we have the safest events, that we have the best security, that we go above and beyond. Just Actually, just yesterday, we're talking about Middlelands, right? It's a new festival we're doing in Texas. For a first-year festival, we're going to have 25, 30,000 people there. We don't anticipate any, any problems, but just in case you could spend $80,000 on a helicopter or, or not, most producers decide not to spend the money on your first first year because it's always an investment. You're never making, you know, you're losing money, but it's okay because you have big ideas for the future. You hope they come to fruition. It's a first year. There won't be that many people there, you know, and uh, we think that everything's going to go smooth. It doesn't matter. We will we will make sure that we have a helicopter because it's an, it's a beautiful venue in the middle of <clears throat> an hour and a half from Houston. Although we think it's going to be a, uh, a safe and well, you know, a small size festival, we take the precautions, you know. So we put a lot of work into making sure that we do everything we can. The, you mentioned the ground control. That was something that we've seen roll out to so many festivals across the United States. There's so many. I was blown away. It was a couple months ago that someone gave me a rundown of how many different groups there are, their version of ground control. I wish I remembered some of the names. It was like Angels, and there's like 15 of them. That didn't exist when we first started. It actually, uh, ground control started because, I don't know why this started happening in 19, maybe it was 2000, 98, 99. People, groups of people started sitting on the ground, on the dance floor. Oh, that was unheard of or in the early days from where I come from. You go there to dance and listen to music and have the best time of your life. And these people were sitting, paying money to come to a show and sit on the dance floor. So we started something called get, uh, uh, the Get Up and Dance Crew. 
and they dressed in orange jumpsuits. They had big giant industrial size brooms. We put flashy lights at the end of them and they were pushing people out of the way. And then when they would get up, they'd give them a little, um, a little gift, like get up and dance. And it was like a, I don't know, like a toy of some sort, something fun. And we noticed in doing that, that there was people that had drank too much or they were lost and sad. They couldn't find their friends because the event was so big. Then it turned into ground control. And it's worked out amazing. I encourage anyone who's producing events to definitely have that, those groups of people there that are not um, event staff, that are not security, that are not medical, but somewhere in between looking out and trying to get ahead of any issues and helping people as best they can. So in regards to pushing things forward for health and safety, we, we are constantly thinking of good ideas. In, in regards to education, we want to educate more and more Every year, we find you know creative ways where we're not bringing on any liability for ourselves, but we are helping the people that are coming to the shows. And the the newest, and we've only done it at two events, Open Talk, and it's gone really well. Unfortunately, because of me running around and, and working on um, other aspects of the show, I was supposed to show up and see the interactions myself and the team was telling me you know saying how well this is going and telling me some of the stories i wanted to see it firsthand i haven't gone um, been able to stop by yet but i'm going to make it a point at the next festival that we do it at and just see how it goes and from there will be more ideas so education is is important and you're right in europe there's a lot more support in america not so much and it's amazing we go to edc mexico we had 100,000 people a day there. There's no one in medical. I don't even think they take drugs. And supposedly, you know, we're told that the cartels bring all these drugs into America. There, there, there are, there, at the events, there's no problems, you know, and they love underground music. The techno stage is cracking. It was one of the, my favorite techno stages that we've had, um, techno in house, and it's really big. And it's, people are drinking and having a good time. So education is important, and we work really hard on finding ways to get information out there without it you know, uh, being perceived as something different. And uh, Carlos, is the techno stage your baby to some extent? Or uh, we've already found out from, from Pasquale that he got the bug in the LA warehouse scene uh, of the early 90s, which continues on to today. When did you know that Okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is this is life. You know, I was born in Quebec City, and uh, I grew up in Spain in a city called San Sebastian up north. And uh, moved back to Montreal when I was 16. And by then, my parents had bought a condo in Cuyera, about 45 kilometers south of the city of Valencia in Spain. So when we came back to live in Montreal, we were spending three months every summer vacation down there. When I was 17 years old, there was a club called El Templo in Cuyera that was just massive, owned by an artist named Chimo Bayo, who had a very popular techno track all over the world. It was called Esta Si Esta No. I've loved dancing all my life since I'm a kid. We were in family parties. I would always be the last one dancing on the dance floor. But, and I've always loved music. I played classical guitar for almost 15 years when I was a lot younger. But this encounter with that nightclub in Spain uh, just blew me away. It blew me away to the extent where when I came back to Montreal, I asked one of my friends who was working at a record store, uh, you know, if there's any parties that go, because that club was going on all night until two o'clock in the afternoon. The lineups were starting around 5 a.m. The club was, you know, not busy until five basically. I tried to find that in Montreal, and a friend of mine who was working in a record store, very popular back then, called HMV. Uh, he told me to go on 64 Prince Street on Saturday night. There's a warehouse there, and they do something called Sex Garage Party. I says, what the hell is that? Uh, now, El Templo in Spain was techno music. And when I came back in Montreal and my friend told me about it, 
you know, we arrive at midnight and there was some dudes installing speakers inside. We opened the door of the warehouse. This is what's going on. Is this open? Said, no, come back at two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. I come back at two o'clock in the morning with a cousin and friends of mine. And there was a lineup, massive lineup of half naked men. <laughs> I'm 17 years old. Uh, you know, I had very strict parents, education, not too open minded. So for me was a shock, but, and I was kind of like scared in a way, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And you know, I said, fuck it, let's do this. My cousin did not want to go in. Uh, I convinced him to come. And this was the change. This is when I've, you know, I heard this track by CC Penniston called Finally. And it was that four by four beat and that same summer, I had listened to techno music at El Templo, and now I'm in a warehouse in Montreal, this big gay events. I mean, I'm seeing people having sex in the venue, and I had never seen people having sex publicly. That track by Cecil Penningston called Finally was when it changed my life. That vibe around me changed my life. And this is when I decided to dedicate myself to house music. I decided that night to become a house slave and do anything I can to promote this music to as many people as possible. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an elitist per person where I just need to hang out with a certain crowd. I'm, I'm to the belief that if you love something, and you find it's great, just share it to as many people as possible of all ages, demography, it doesn't really matter, you know? If something you feel is great, just share it, you know? The summer after, you know, and then, then it's my introduction, I want to know everything. I go back to Spain, and then they have this route, new clubs opening up between the city of Cuyera and Valencia, and, that, and back then, hardcore techno was massive in Spain, and it was called the Codsfish Music for Musica Bacala. Again, that keeps changing my life. All of a sudden, I adore house music and I love hardcore techno. <laughs> like two completely uh, different styles, but that energy, I mean, there was a club called Chocolate, which means ashish in English, chocolate, and so you smoke chocolate, and, uh, you know. This club was built in an old jail in the rice fields. There was 13,000 people capacity. I have never seen a vibe like that ever in my life. Never. Like that, that was, it was almost dangerous to a certain extent. But back in those days, we liked that danger. We liked that illegal vibe. We didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. And that was the, you know, the thrill about it. That second summer when I, I, I saw all these hardcore techno clubs in Valencia, a friend of my uncle happens to be the owner of a very famous club in, in Ibiza called Privilege. Back then it was called El Cu. And uh, that owner, Jose Maria, got us a villa and invited us to come to the club. And I saw this party called Manu Mission. And honestly, that is when I made a decision to start doing events like that. Manu Mission was not only about the DJ, it was about performance art. Uh, I'm not sure if I should go into details of what was going on. I think I'll, I'll avoid express that, but it, it completely blew me away. And when I came back to Montreal, that's when I you know, started to get to know everybody in the scene and, and really start promoting events. My first booking ever, was a rave that I did in a cafeteria of a college Maisonneuve, and it was this techno guy named DJ Repeat in New York. It was a catastrophe. Yeah. Uh, it was a catastrophe. We, we, we had finance from Hells Angels back then, and it, it, was, it was just, it did not go well. Uh, there was a club called uh, Sona, which was very famous back then in Canada. Pretty much, I'd say, the best club in the country back then. It was a bar and an after hour. The bar would be open until 3 a.m. and the after hour club would open at 2 a.m. until whenever. And uh, the, I made friends, I got very close with the owner, uh, Francois, 
back then and who's still one of my closest friends. And uh, he's asked me to help him out. And, you know, he wanted to do like a special event once a month at the club on Thursday. And he has a friend from the gay community that wanted to do a party, but I'd like you, Carlos, to help him out. And um, I, my first really official booking was with Victor Calderon, uh, who had just remixed Ray of Light, uh, Madonna's album back then, uh, for my first really official event. It was a gay event that I did for about three years, and it was called One Night in Bangkok. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, Victor was, was, you know, I would say my first official booking, I would say, back then. The East Coast, as you know, like New York and Montreal, were, were, you know, house music. If you wanted to listen to house music back then in the 90s, you had to go to a gay club. New York had uh, the tunnel, they had Sound Factory, Shelter, Sound Factory Bar, uh, Limelight, Club USA, uh, you know, and back then, you guys, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar, it was very tribal, very vocal. Um, I was, uh, you know, I'm still a massive fan of it. We don't have as much of that anymore, but. Him and I are still massive fans of that too, for sure. But uh, it's it, it's interesting that you mentioned the Hell's Angels. It put, it put me in mind of uh, Hell's Angels and music festivals don't go that well together as uh, <laughs> you, you might've seen the documentary, Gimme Shelter. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I wanted to speak with you about that, Pasquale, because at this point, like EDC is, this is like, you know, the new Woodstock or something like it, I, and and it seems that you know you've looked to concert promoters like Bill Graham, U.S. rock promoters, legendary U.S. rock promoters for for influence. Like, is is that something that as this has grown, like you've looked back to like the history of U.S. festivals, and do you see yourself fitting more so into into that, like psychedelic rock festivals and that sort of thing? The the festival promoters from back then, you know, Woodstock, for instance, I feel like actually prevented festivals in America from existing. And the other festival you just mentioned, that one in Northern California, Altima, where they had Hells Angels uh, do security and someone died. So there were no festivals. Europe has had festivals all the way from back then to now. And we didn't have festivals. We had raves. <laughs> and, you know, all these festivals that you see now, even, you know, the Lollapaloozas, the Coachellas, great festivals, they didn't exist before raves. And a good friend of mine, Paul T., who does uh, Coachella, you know, he was, he, he was uh, actually an investor in some of my raves, and he had many inspirations, but one of them definitely was the rave culture. And Coachella then inspired a, a bunch of other festivals to pop up. So rave culture is what I will say has what fueled festivals from it to exist in America. So I'm a raver, um, and my inspiration has been from the rave scene, the rave culture, the underground scene, the warehouse parties. Of course, I've been inspired by people like Bill Graham, and there's actually a story that's great. Um, someone was at in the bathroom at a Bill at the Bill Graham at a Bill Graham venue, and Someone was there. Who's playing? To, who's playing tonight? You know, taking a leak at the at the stall or whatever it was, and they look over and I don't know. Who cares? This is the Bill Graham Bill Graham event. It's it's epic. It's going off. You know, and it reminded me of the early rave scene because although you would go to the party with the lineup that you wanted, you know, there was the, the there was the party to be at. You knew the music was going to be good. You you didn't necessarily it all blended into one another. The sets. The DJ was in the corner. You didn't know when they were playing, you knew that the music was gonna be good, you trusted the promoter, you trusted that the lineup that was advertised you originally when you saw the party was um, gonna have the right sound that you would enjoy. And you'd go there and just have the best time of your life and people would be facing in all, with, all different directions and versus waiting for this one DJ or that one DJ. It was, it was about the more the music than the person and um, the vibe, and also the crowd that was around you, and the you know the warehouse or what you know the environment, the adventure to getting there, the fact that you didn't know if it was going to keep going on, if it was going to get busted, all these things were so exciting. 
And the music was, you know, um, unlike anything I had ever heard. The closest thing to it were the old, early, uh, you know, Rocket by Herbie Hancock or cr the old Kraftwerk stuff. You know, so walking into this world was amazing. And I wanted to, you know, my inspiration mainly came from the early rave scene. But, of course, um, I've looked at what other people have done and why they aren't around today and also um, what amazing things they they've done and what I could do, how I could do my own version of that, you know? So it's, I don't believe festivals would be what they are today if it wasn't for rave culture. They may, maybe would have eventually happened, but not as soon as they did. Rave promoters, there used to be a lot of them, and we were pushing things forward. There were no festivals. Even, even Lala was more of a touring shed event. It wasn't a, 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 a festival like what you see today. Organic was sort of the first experiment with that format for you in, in 96, going up into the mountains and stuff. You know, I, I have, yeah. And, and what was the lineup on that one? Oh, man. The left Orb field, play, right? or, yeah. Left Field, The Orb, Orbital, uh, gosh, Loop Guru. Oh man, you're going back. But that was a that was a legendary one. That was a good one. We had to put that together pretty quickly too, because all those bands just happened to. Oh, Chemical Brothers was on it. How could I forget that? Yeah, it was it was insane. For those who don't know, it was it was um, at Snow Valley Ski Resort in the mountains during the summer, of course, and it was beautiful. It went till the sunrise, and it was the biggest lineup ever up until that point in in southern california did you know what you were doing at that point did i know what i was doing <laughs> um i was still learning i'm still learning now you know i i don't i'm learning every day and i had a lot more to learn at that point for sure it's it's funny like a common gripe in the underground scene is like yeah, I showed up at this club. Everybody was just staring at the DJ, you know, and and and. Oh, man, I feel bad for the DJ sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, I went to a sh a show at Exchange. Actually, we did a show at Exchange for uh, or I do a radio show called Night Owl Radio, and we had the one year anniversary, and I was really excited about about it, and uh, I had a friend DJ Tice Tiesto was able to DJ at it. And uh, it was under play for him. And it was, was looking forward to having a really good night of music, good n night with um, friends. And, and uh, got to the show, and everyone was just standing there. Everyone was just standing there. And they were waiting for Tiesto to come on. And it wasn't a party at all. And even when he played, people would go off, but they would wait for the moment, the certain moments, even within his set, even though they're, and it was going off and they were there to see him and they were, and it was very concerty and it was very calculated. They were just, it was very, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't like that same feeling of those parties where people are facing one another, almost performing for one another, dancing and getting lost in the music. They were waiting for certain songs to come on. They were waiting for him to, you know, put his hand up and stuff like that. And I, it's like, he, he works so hard and plays so much as a lot of these DJs do. And being up there, and I was up there for a second to kind of feel the energy f from the crowd. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of pressure. And it's not as enjoyable as if people lose themselves in the music. And it's not so, I, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's a different than when you go to a party and people are just taking in the music and not waiting to be entertained so much. Um, I forgot how I actually got into this, but um, yeah, so what was your question? <laughs> what was your question? So you're talking about how a common gripe in, you know, 500 or 1,000 cap club is everybody crowds around the booth and just stares at the DJ as though he or she is doing anything different than physically than the DJ that played directly before that. And uh, if you haven't seen a picture of EDC Las Vegas, I recommend Google image searching it right now because it's, it's, it almost looks more 
like an amusement park. Like the the stage setup is incredibly elaborate. You know, only only in some of the Dutch festivals really sort of rival the stage setup, and and is part of the idea that people get lost in the whole thing. So it's not they're staring at a DJ or like a specific person. Is it, is it like sort of that same sort of decentralizing idea? Is that what you're trying to do on a massive scale there? Yeah, we're, we're trying to definitely have people look in every which direction and explore versus come in, you know, get your ticket ripped, run up to the stage, sit at the barricade and wait for those moments Listen, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of certain artists and certain sounds and certain genres, and I want to be there for those moments. But I, don't, I know that the DJ is going to be in the mix, and I'm not waiting for him to do anything except for, you know, I, we used to rave at the speakers because that's where the sound was coming out of. There's these big dance circles, you know, and just the vibe, whether you, you were in the circle, even if you weren't in the middle of the circle, you were dancing on the perimeter of the circle. Everyone was facing one another. People were going, going off. Mm-hmm versus waiting for something to happen. And also on the way in, or in, you know, while you're walking from one stage to another, exploring, you know, there's different art forms. You know, there's art installations, there's you know, theatrical performers, there's art cars, and underground parties, and you mentioned earlier the human art. You know, I mean, I remember going to this underground party, I'll never forget it. I'll remember it to the day I die. Not only was the music amazing at this party that I went to, but on the way in, there was this man that was probably 500 pounds, and he was in like a sumo, he was either in a diaper or like a sumo wrestler uh, outfit, I guess I'd call it. Um, And he was painted all white, and he had a stack of, I don't know, 300 cheeseburgers next to him. And he was kind of eating them slowly, and he was painted white, and there was projectors on him. <laughs> and it was just rad. It was just, it was trippy, and it was rad. And it made my night, you know, even more special and memorable. And then um, that same night, you know, uh, DJ Dan, uh, I was pulling my hair out like he was, dr- he was playing, um, dropping some records that I, I was a big fan of, this tape called DX2. I was used to hearing it, th- these tracks a certain way, and he was doubling up on them, and he was doing a different version of this of this set that I love so much. But I was never really hounding him at the decks. He was, I probably, I think the DJs were even on the floor, you know, because they weren't to, to be bothered, and he was able to do his thing. We were at the speakers, we were in dance circles, we were skipping around the dance floor, just just hyped, you know? And it was a great environment. So, and there was different things that were that would pull you away from, um, that would keep pulling you to other areas of, of the event and into other buildings, other warehouses. And it, it would be, you know, you'd, you'd explore and it was adventurous and, and memorable and fun and unique. And there was art in a lot of different forms. And this is something that you related to as well, Carlos, like when you just relayed your sort of early formative experiences, it was seeing performance art. It was being at a 13,000 cap hardcore techno club in Spain. It was seeing, getting your mind blown by this super triple X like gay party that you were at. Like, is, is this something that you guys sort of bonded over and you, you, did you have a similar philosophy when you came to Insomniac where you were like, yeah, it's, it's, it's everything. It's not, it's not just the DJ. It's not just the music. Uh, one, one, well, 1000%, uh, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've partied a lot in my life. Uh, I was a client, I was a raver. For me, it's all about the party. And I think a party is not only about the, the musical artist, you know, it's, you got different elements that make it a party. You know, when it's all about a DJ, like Pasquale explained, when there was this, this show at, a, at the club where everyone stands and not dance, yeah, I don't come from, that's the concert business. I never wanted to be, we, we, we never wanted to be concert promoters. It was, the music needs to be good. We're not gonna just put anyone on. We like our different styles, you know, and we have our favorites, 
we have to get them. That's, that's the easy part. Remember the first factory in 93, we knew we wanted to do techno and house, and that was, that was a given. In the warehouse, that was a given. You know, that's what we were feeling. But remember how excited we were getting about the human art stuff? You took it to a whole nother level. <laughs> With I did. What you, what, you know, you went back to your Berlin days. But um, it was, you know, the, the music being good and having the right artists there is so important. There's other things that are important as well. It's just the focus isn't one thing. It's many things. And whether it's a warehouse party and you do things in a more subtle way, in a more intimate way, or you're doing giant festival and you want to wow people on a, on a, in a different, you know, in a whole different way. The details are important. We care about every aspect of the show. Uh, the lineup, the art, where the party's taking place, the logistics, all, everything, everything matters, you know? You know, I remember going to parties and just, I was on, uh, all my senses were touched. I mean, even, I remember, whatever happened to, um, scented smoke actually i remember going to a warehouse party and the first time you know it was like doc martin i don't even remember like it helped me remember there was additional things that you know i remember doc martin was playing there was actually a guy on a bicycle floating above me from the ceiling and he was dressed as a devil and he was biking really fast but he wasn't going anywhere because he was floating Doc Martin was playing, and there was like scented smoke, and I was just like, "Where? This is awesome!" And the party was going off. You know, it was just—it wasn't just about standing there and watching Doc. Um, I could do that too, and and you know what? Back then, we wouldn't even have done that because there were parties where it was just a straight warehouse, and Doc was playing, and Steve Loria, Mark Max, all these—you know—those were the DJs at the time that were rocking it. Doc's still rocking it, but. Um, you know, it was, um, people still weren't standing there waiting for him to make his next move, you know? So to answer your question, we definitely like to focus on um, other aspects and pull people in different directions. Also, headliners. You know, the people at the event are just as important as the DJs that we have at the event. EDC uh, refers to its attendees as headliners, of course. Um, we're, we're talking about the theater of the absurd that is L.A. raving in the early 90s or going to parties in Spain or going to parties in Montreal. It's also big business at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there was that article in The New Yorker that said for, for a period of time there, EDM was making more money than gambling in Las Vegas. That was like an, eye, an eye-opening sort of statistic at that point. You said of the sort of demise of SFX, raving in Wall Street don't mix. <laughs> Are you guys ravers turned reluctant businessmen or have you been like businessmen since the start? Board, boardroom ravers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a great team and, and we have to have it all make sense. We have to be businessmen. As much as we love this, we can't be reckless about it. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to keep doing it. So we have to have our business cap on. But we also, our passion is, is there. And people that try to jump in this business, and it's happened over and over again, that come in for just business, with, and they're just seeing dollar signs, they don't stay. They don't last. It, I've not seen it happen. They come and go because it is really hard and it's not as, it's a lot of work. You have to love it. Everyone in the business, I think it was like, it was a nonprofit business for two decades, I would say. It was only recently that people were doing well. And even during that time, if you didn't love it, somehow you didn't do well. It didn't, it didn't come together because you have to live this. It's not a nine to five. You have to live this. And in order to live this, you have to love it. <laughs>